Hey, it's Arlene Bynum for Jeff MacArthur. On the podcast for today, Friday, November the 6th, we talk about the election in the United States of America and what we know at this time. Then, how the Ontario budget will impact business and retail in the province. And as we approach Remembrance Day on November the 11th, we talk about why we wear a poppy. All of this coming up right now. Really selling it big on this budget that dropped yesterday and certainly not a budget they expected to have to put in even a year ago, but it is what it is. We're going to get some reaction right now to this budget and some of the areas that the Premier is quite confident that is that it is going to help because there have been holes. We know this. Watch the pandemic. People are suffering. Rent relief and the whole thing. Joining us is Jocelyn Bamford, President and Founder, Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and businesses of Canada. Jocelyn, welcome. How are you? You're a happy person today. I am. I'm very happy because this has been um, a hill that we've been trying to climb up for for uh, the past four years and getting uh, energy competitive in Ontario so that we can keep businesses and jobs here has been what we've been all about. So we're very pleased to see that the government um, has made steps to make our electricity rate competitive here in Ontario. Is it enough? You know, you just raised a really good point. Competitive. It's one thing to fight back against the pandemic, isn't it? It's another thing to keep open. It's a whole other thing. And we get back to an ancient conversation that was happening before March in this country is how do we stay competitive against the United States? How do we keep business here? Is there enough meat on the bones here today for you? Yes, and, and for us, this, this is a, goes a, a long way in addressing that competitive issue because um, our electricity rates were, uh, for, for small to medium-sized business, uh, my rate was $0.28 cents and sometimes $0.32 cents a kilowatt hour, and that was because the global adjustment was unfairly put on small to medium-sized uh, manufacturers, Class B industrial users, they're called. So we were very uncompetitive. Uh, the states has, you know, between four and six cents. Uh, we and and the problem was the global adjustment charge was unfairly put on the small to medium sized business, and that was all those wind and solar contracts. They were on our backs. So to have eighty five percent of that global adjustment charge and those wind and solar contracts removed off of our bill helps a lot. Now we still have a long way to go with the federal government because as the Ontario government gives us stuff to make us more competitive, the federal government seems to load costs onto us and the clean fuel standards that's coming down the pipe and the increase of the carbon tax really just, we feel like the Ontario government understands and is trying to make us more competitive and the federal government is just uh, bearing us with more cost. All right. And, you know, that was a song that you were singing before the pandemic. And as you say, it may be tightening things up. You know, how do these things, though, actually work, this kind of relief? One of the things, and you mentioned the federal government, is this going to be the case here? Is this immediate? Can, does it make you see sunshine through the windows a little bit easier here? Or do you have to wait a while? Well, it's it's not effective till January mm-hmm. 21. So, but, but we see a light at the end of the tunnel, whereas we saw no light at the end of the tunnel before. So this, you know, this gives us hope that we can get through the pandemic and we can be competitive. But again, we, we need to have a federal um, national plan on manufacturing and keeping manufacturing here. People have seen in the pandemic how important it is to have 
items that we need produced here in Canada. And so we're calling, the coalition is calling for a national strategy on keeping manufacturing here and keeping competitive rates here and adding more costs from a federal level with these clean fuel standards and this plastics as toxic that they're declaring, which will decimate our plastics industry, which is a $35 billion with a B uh, dollar industry in Canada and employs over 100,000 people. This is not good federal strategy. So we commend the Ontario government for what they're doing. I think they understand how important businesses are and jobs are, but we call on the federal government that they need to get their act together because they're just destroying us. You know, there was a sense from a lot of people that a lot of small business bore the brunt of this, no fault of their own. What are you hearing? What's the state? I mean, where are these seeds coming? I mean, is is the ground drying up? for businesses. I mean, it's just been heartbreaking to watch people close. It is, and and we're seeing, you know, additional cost with uh, PPE. We're seeing um, businesses that uh, that aren't going to weather the storm, and uh, it's very concerning for us. So it's good to see that that we that we can see some relief um, through the Ontario government on our electricity bills coming. Um, it, it is in January, but it you know it's it's uh, two months away, um, and we're looking forward to that relief. And we're calling on the federal government to also provide us relief. Why wouldn't they roll back this carbon taxes? Why wouldn't they roll you know abandon this clean fuel standards? It's it's beyond us. All right, Jocelyn Banford, thank you for joining us. You take care and have a great weekend. Thanks kindly. Well, take care, Arlene. All right. Jocelyn's president, founder, Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses in Canada. We have more. I would like to welcome Sebastian Prince, who's Director of Government Relations for Ontario Retail Council of Canada. Welcome, Sebastian. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Arlene. Happy to be here. Are you happy with what you see in this budget? Is this an all-round euphoria here for you today? Oh, oh, definitely. So, so I think Premier Farb and uh, Minister Phillips have really continued to demonstrate that entrepreneurship, small business creativity, those are, are huge priorities in this budget. Uh, we mm-hmm. saw, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, that in that recovery pillar, that one of the three pillars there, $4.8 billion, uh, a lot of that, Uh, uh, headed towards small business through support programs to kind of lay that foundation for a strong economic recovery uh, post-COVID and and to help support those businesses during COVID. You know, I just asked Jocelyn this, how is it out there? We've been hearing just doom and gloom. And what does an announcement like this do to those who say they might not be able to hang on by their fingernails anymore? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, So a couple of things. So yeah, so uh, retail Council of Canada, we represent uh, all of the retail trade categories. Uh, one subsector in particular, uh, clothing. Clothing is, is, is still mm-hmm. you know, being hit harder than most. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, of more kind of small businesses in that, that subsector as well. Uh, I, I've heard from a lot of members, you know, if you picture yourself, if you wind back the clock here as we, we went into to, to April and March, uh, there were, that's an industry that, that orders a lot of their inventory in advance. They, they had pre-ordered mm-hmm. their summer clothing for the summer. And, you know, that was a bad time to be in the market uh, uh, selling, you know, $100,000 worth of, of spring clothing. So uh, definitely a couple of, of businesses in some specific categories uh, uh, more than others that are, are in some, some, some hot water here. But uh, maybe the thing I'll point to first here in the budget mm-hmm. is, is um, the, the continuation of the, the uh, commercial eviction moratorium for small businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's a huge one. Uh, if you are one of those, those small businesses that is 
underwater, kind of struggling to resurface your head here. Uh, this gives you a bit more time to kind of find that cash flow. Uh, I'm sure you'll recall, Arlene, over, over the summer, uh, lots of federal programs to help subsidize uh, uh, landlord-tenant arrangements. Uh, 75% of the bill could be covered off. Uh, but a lot of landlords weren't taking folks up on that offer. Uh, it wasn't until Premier Ford stepped in, uh, said, you know, loud and clear, uh, we're not going to accept landlords evicting uh, tenants, um, uh, that, that we kind of saw a, a much deeper and broader uptake of that. Today's budget, or yesterday's budget, I should say, uh, it, it continues that policy. It gives the, the, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing uh, uh, the authority to kind of continue that on into the future uh, on on an emergency basis, so we don't expect that to be any anything permanent here. But uh, uh, until such a time as we're out of the pandemic, so that's that's great for our small businesses and our main street. All right, good luck. We're all thinking of you, Sebastian Prince. Thank you kindly. Appreciate Thanks it so much. Have a good one. Sebastian is Director of Government Relations for Ontario Retail Council of Canada. And there we're getting, you know, we see the energy coming from Ottawa, where the Premier is making the announcements after dropping this budget yesterday. And so far, really good feedback. In hour two, we're going to talk to some others who are not so happy about this budget. Plus, we're going to bring you the latest on the election in the United States, a gripping moment. As Joe Biden creeps towards getting the amount of electoral college wins, he needs to be the next president of the United States. The reaction from Donald Trump is not positive as this process continues. So for Jeff MacArthur, I'm Arlene Bynum. It could be a historic Friday. It certainly is an incredible, crazy Friday. We've been just getting reaction to the Ontario budget going live there to Ottawa, where the Premier is, trying to unpack and get some reaction. This hour, we're going to have more reaction to that budget. We had a lot of people cheering it on in hour one, and our guests this hour are not so happy about it. The other big story, of course, we went to Washington to talk with Reggie Cicchini. It is the election campaign in the United States of America. It's not election night. This is election week. We were warned about it. But wow, hard to take as I began the show today. You've got Joe Biden inching away with a path forward, making a plan to speak to the nation tonight. And then you have the president calling about fraud and election violations and asking for all sorts of legal challenges here. It is a most unusual situation. Uh, joining us as we begin our one, we're going to bring you the latest. John LeBoutlier is joining me, former Republican congressman, political analyst, co-host of the podcast Revolution, which I'm on. And I just want to say to some of our 640 listeners, they may remember John from years ago, who was a bit of a crowd favorite. John LeBoutlier joining us from New York City, I believe, right now. John, welcome. Good afternoon, Arlene. I, I am at Long Island, New York, yeah, outside okay. New York City. It is 66 degrees and Indian summer, I guess is what we call it. It's beautiful. and But it's, it's, it's a weird feeling, isn't it, with this election week, as you call it. It might be election month before we're over. All right. You know, there's three different parts of this. The latest, of course, as you know, the votes are still being counted. There is no decision yet. Joe Biden has a path forward and he keeps John. These votes are heading towards Joe Biden in Pennsylvania. He, if he gets Pennsylvania, he's got this, doesn't he? Correct. He's at 253 electoral votes. You need 270. Pennsylvania is 20 electoral votes. So, yes, that's all he needs 
is to win Pennsylvania. And he was down the first day when the same-day voting was over. He was down 600,000 votes. And he's now, as you just, your news reader said, he's up, you know, I don't know, 12,000 or something. And it's growing exponentially because the votes that are being counted are mail-in ballots from Democratic areas where he's been getting 80 to 90 percent of them. John, he's saying that that this is uh, rigged and it's fraud. We've never heard this before from a president. He has not come up with any evidence. Even Governor Christie is saying, if you don't have the evidence, this is not your right. It's his right to ask for a recount. It's his right to ask for explanations. And nothing is over until all the votes are counted. How unprecedented is this? You've been a congressman. You know politics in the United States. You know many people who are still players around this president. How do you feel today watching the United States? Of America. Well, he he's a disaster to say these things. First of all, in all the years I've been around or in politics or around it, I've never heard any Republican or any Democrat candidate or campaign ever allege fraud. They've not, it's just never been brought up. We don't have a fraudulent system here. Yes, there's there was a boss politics in Chicago and in Texas 70 years ago and certainly hundreds of years ago where bosses rigged some votes. But in general sense, where there have been 160 million people voted this time, the idea that there's wholesale massive fraud that is depriving Donald Trump of re-election is insane. We're watching Republicans. What are you watching? I mean, you are a Republican. You have known Donald Trump um, outside of the political world, so you've watched it from a bunch of different ways. But what are you watching for as you look for Republicans and their reaction to this? Well, I mean, they, I, I guess I am watching Republicans, um, and more and more of them have come out today. Mitch McConnell, Romney, Sass, a, a very, a Rubio have very heavily criticized the statements last night in the press room at quarter of seven from Trump, that 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 was beyond the pale. I, I, want, I want to remind your listeners if they knew this. 1960, the race was Richard Nixon was the vice president. He was the sitting vice president running against Senator John Kennedy for president 1960. We get to the election day. Yeah. Um, and that night it was basically tied. And, it went on all night long, and Nixon made a decision. There were some voting irregularities of all places in Cook County, Chicago, Illinois, which is boss-run politics, Mayor Daley, and some irregularities in, of all places, Texas, where Lyndon Johnson was the major domo. Mm-hmm. And he had a, a choice to make, which was, I could maybe prolong this thing, Maybe go to court, try to get an investigation of perhaps fraud. And he decided not to do it because he said to do it would tear the country apart. And we would not have a new president. And when we finally got one, he'd be under tremendous um, shadows of suspicion. So he conceded the race. And what a difference that is from this, where the sitting president has clearly on the losing side of this thing. And has every right to the recount that you mentioned in each of these states that he's qualified mm-hmm. for. That No one doubts that. But to trash the system and say that these millions of voters who voted legally by mailing in their ballot because of the pandemic, 
mm-hmm. that they shouldn't be counted, that that's a fraud. He's just, it's a disaster what he's saying. Is it going to do some damage here? You know, from the media point of view, I'm looking and there's this giant conversation on social media today. What do you call? Look, the votes are still being counted. This is not uh, Joe Biden's gig yet. He has a path forward. I just want to keep saying that the media is going to do their job. We're not. We're going where the story leads us. But there's this conversation is what do you call um, Joe Biden if he's a president elect when the sitting president doesn't admit it's happening. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of strange stuff going on here. You know, should we address that? And I guess a president-elect is a president-elect. It doesn't matter what he thinks. He is the president-elect, and Trump, whether anybody likes it or not, is the president till noon on January 20th. We can have both a president and a president-elect. That They're not in conflict. Uh, <clears throat> but there are things that go on between the election and our inauguration that require the cooperation of the president of the United States. If he's on his way out, he needs to authorize the executive department, of which he's the head, Mm -hmm. to cooperate in a transition. And a transition is a big deal. Every department has people in it that are going to be replaced by Biden's people if Biden wins. And they need to be brought up to speed and have everything, you know, smoothly transferred on January 20th. But if the sitting president refuses to do that, well, the only thing it hurts is the, the country. You know, it's, it's a selfish act if he won't cooperate in that. Secondly, there is the handoff of, of civilized, in a civilized mm-hmm. manner, of the power to the new president, which we do in a way where the outgoing president symbolically appears with the incoming president during the transition at least once, and then on Inauguration Day a couple of times. And I don't know that President Trump's going to cooperate and do that either. And it's very disruptive, it's untraditional, and it's not helpful to anybody. All right. Is America going to make make this happen here? The world is watching America. Oh, absolutely. And it's not easy. It's great thing. It's going to absolutely happen, no matter the petulance of Donald Trump has nothing to do with what's happening. The votes are getting counted as we're speaking. Mm-hmm. More votes are being updated on websites of the state's attorneys, uh, state secretaries of state every hour. And we're going to have a final total within two weeks. And I mean a final total before the votes in each state are certified. And Trump has no power to stop that. And he can yell and scream about fraud. If he has evidence of fraud, he should bring it forward and present it in court. And he hasn't done it. John LeBoutlier, we watch these numbers come in and let's see if it will be a historic day. We need a decision. John, it was great to, for you to join me here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Arlene. Talk to you soon. All right. Will do. John LeBoutlier, former Republican congressman, political analyst. It's Arlene Bynan for Jeff MacArthur today, and we're going to stick with the poppy story here for a moment because there's so many different aspects. It's right and wrong and who it is and veterans and what does it mean and symbolism, all that stuff. It also is an employment story. Joining us, Andrew Goldberg, employment lawyer associate at Sanfiru Tamarkin. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good afternoon. 
Hey, what a story. It is an employment story. Do they have a, a right to do that here in Canada? Well, it's definitely an interesting employment story. Um, and, and it needs to be addressed from two. There's essentially two angles to look at this, right? One is mm-hmm. from an employment law perspective, which is what we deal with as a law firm. And two is from a PR perspective, which is a whole other story, right? So from a legal perspective, an employer does have the right to mandate its employees to, you know, to abide by a certain dress code, okay? And mm-hmm. the only way that an employee can essentially get around that is to say, you know, for human rights reasons, you know, maybe you have a certain religious belief, you know, you, you need to wear a turban or something of that nature, um, you can maybe get around the dress code. The problem with this case is that the way a court and our law would interpret the, you know, the wearing of a poppy is that of a political belief. And unfortunately, a political belief is not protected under the Ontario Human Rights Code. So an employee cannot say, oh, this is discriminatory against me because it's not a protected ground under the code, which is, you know, some provinces across the country, they actually do have political expression as a, you know, human rights ground to be protected, but not here in Ontario which is an interesting situation. So, you know, we've had two things happen. The CEO has been asked to appear in front of the Veterans Committee in Ottawa. So that's kind of a, a, a bit of process, a little bit of theater, a little bit of publicity heat. And then we have the premier saying this is just the way it's going to be. Can he do that? Well, interestingly enough, they, they likely can. They, could, they likely can pass legislation allowing employees to have the right to wear a poppy. That said, there are still some health and safety concerns that, you know, you you can't get around. Like, for example, if you work in an environment that deals with food or some kind of safety-sensitive workplace that maybe there is a legitimate concern about wearing a poppy or a pin or something of that nature, then, you know, an employer may still have the right to say, you know, you can't wear a poppy. But if you're a you know, working at Whole Foods and you're facing customers as a cashier or stocking shelves, something like that, it's going to be hard to say that, you know, there's a bona fide legitimate reason to have that employee not wear a poppy. I mean, from a, like, like again, I, I can't stress enough. I don't know the reason from this from a PR perspective. I understand that some of the employees have asked, what is the impetus for this? Why do we have to do this? They haven't gotten um, any sort of legitimate response and there have been instances in the past, one time McDonald's, I believe in 2012, tried to do the same thing. There was instantly tons of pushback and they backpedaled immediately. So I don't understand it necessarily from a PR perspective. And to me, it might seem that it's kind of something out of nothing, but this is what's happening, unfortunately. It is. There's one aspect of the PR angle of this. And it's not good, is it? Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's a matter of what... Mm-hmm people as a whole think, I think mm-hmm. many more people would say, would tend to agree with you that why why prohibit people from wearing a poppy? It, it, it commemorates fallen soldiers. I mean, I personally have family members that served in World War II and, and in, the, in the Army, and I tend to agree with you. But there is, I suppose, I'm not too familiar with it, but there is, uh, I suppose, a part of the population that maybe for anti-war purposes or for something like that they think a poppy is not a great symbol i don't know you know what percentage of the population that amounts to but i think the vast vast 
vast majority of people would certainly agree why is this an issue today like we have yeah. enough going on i think we got enough i mean this is uh really getting into the needle andrew goldberg thank you for your time you have a great weekend thanks kindly andrew you too enjoy the weather Will do, Andrew Goldberg, Employment Lawyer Associate at Sanfiro Tamarkin. And, yeah, there we go. Like me, PR, it isn't good. I just want to talk a little bit. I only have a few minutes left, but we're watching, and I see there's breaking news that uh, Donald Trump has asked for the Supreme Court to stop the late votes in Pennsylvania. Is that going to work? We're watching the story as it goes through. We know Joe Biden has said that he's going to address the nation with Kamala Harris tonight. Uh, he is still watching these numbers come in. They're coming in and shrinking leads here for Joe Biden. Um, you know, remains to be seen what the Supreme Court, if this is going to go through. And, you know, we just talk about the public relations aspect of the poppy. What's the public relations aspect of this for Donald Trump? Or does he even care? We're going to welcome a quick guest here as we talk about Democrats abroad Canada, because we're watching this. There are Canadian people here in Canada watching this election with a little more skin in the game. Joining us is Ed Unger, co-vice chair of Democrats Abroad Canada. Ed, welcome. Thank you, and, and, and glad to be here. All right, we've got breaking news. The Supreme Court is being asked to block those late votes. You're watching this election with uh, vested interests here, and you're doing it from Canada. How does it feel? What do you? What's going through your mind here today? Oh boy! I first of all, uh, his shenanigans at the court are one thing. It's just another manifestation of his authoritarian view of the world, where he wants to stop people from voting. That good authoritarians in strange little countries tend to do that. But, you know, if we lose our democracy in the United States, as as Americans in Canada, we know that won't be good for the U.S., it won't be good for Canada, it won't be good for the world. Thank goodness that it looks very much like Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. He's getting more votes and more votes in more places. What do you say? What do you think the Supreme Court's going to do here? Is this going to go through? Uh, Legal says no. It is such a specious argument that no self-respecting person on the court would actually agree with it. But Trump doesn't respect the court. He actually expects them to go with it because, after all, he put them on there. I, 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 it's, it's a total lack of respect for the intellect of to, to say stop the vote because I know they're uh, not for me, going to vote against me. No, you stop, you, you, you let all American citizens vote. And, and and that's the final say on all this. One more thing. We had a we had a uh, uh, a slogan, vote as if your life depends on it. Well, guess what? It actually does. According to uh, the Institute of, of uh, uh, Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University, 
if the United States had followed the protocols followed out in Canada, it's most probable that 133,000 American lives would have been saved. To have this guy running around in, in, uh, increasing the probability that people will get the virus, you know what? The U.S. is very close to Canada. So far, we've been Canada has been successful in keeping most of the influence of the U.S. virus out. But there's no guarantees. We no guarantees, right. and he did have people voted for him. Still, you know everything you said there. People voted for him. Can America heal from a? You're you're in Canadian soil here. Can you see a healing yeah. finally here? We hope so. If there's anybody who can, Joe Biden is the guy. And we will we will all hope that he will, in fact, help heal the nation. That is what he set out to do when when he saw Trump saying there were both there are good people on both sides when the white supremacist the Nazi uh, proto-Nazi rally in Charlotte, uh, Virginia took place. That's when he decided to run because he knew that in the words of Barack Obama, there's no blue states, there's no red states, there's only the United States. And right. that's how he would run. And that's how we recovered. There we go. All right. Ed Unger, co-vice chair, Democrats Abroad Canada. And we're looking at it as Canadians. You're looking at it as as an American here in Canada. Ed, thank you for joining us live today and adding your view. We appreciate it. Thank you. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify. Search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.